And what I've found, to be honest, is that especially for the first couple years that I get an athlete here, most of the time they just need to train consistently and all of those qualities are going to improve. And then it's really once we have an athlete that's been in, in our program for you know two, three years is when some of those uh, real specific differences start to come into play of how, how is that information being used to really individualize training. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. A few months ago, I had the pleasure of having Neil Welch, Daniel Kadlec, and Molly Benetti on a Sportsmith Live roundtable discussing change direction ability. And after that, I thought it was an absolute no-brainer to get Molly back on for a podcast episode. So it's change direction ability that we have a little dive into today. And we start off by having a little chat around understanding change direction performance, designing drills, and then finish off with developing change direction qualities in a gym environment. So a superb episode following on from the chat I had with Daniel Neal and and Molly herself. But to get her input in this area is absolutely fantastic and to have a little chat around testing options as well which may be a little bit of a controversial topic given molly's answers on that so i'd love to hear what people think on that by the way uh, and get some feedback but i'm going to hand over to molly it's a superb episode if you haven't checked out the round table that we did make sure you do it's at sportsmith.co forward slash live This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com 
or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Molly Binetti. Molly Binetti, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on again. Rob, I appreciate it. You know, I've got to actually take a second. You know, I remember when I first started out in this field as a student and I was in college, your podcast was one of my go-tos for content um, early on in my career. So kind of seeing this come full circle is a pretty cool moment for me to be on here as a guest. So I appreciate it. I really do. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. And I say again, not that you've been on the podcast before, but we have spoken before when you're on the Mastermind with Neil and Daniel on the um, Change Direction um, Mastermind. So thank you for coming back on. So that's going to be the that's going to be the focus of the the chat for the next forty five minutes to an hour. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, we didn't really go into a too much of a background and introduction on the mastermind because we we're we we're short on time. But just to get a bit of a background on you would be would be great. Uh, absolutely. So I'm a you know college strength and conditioning coach by trade, and this is my f- uh, ninth excuse me ninth full time year in the college environment, and I basically got my start as a freshman in college and I had no idea that strength and conditioning even existed, but I was really lucky enough to cross paths with the head strength coach at my university at Marquette and and Todd Smith. And he opened his doors to me right off the bat, just if I wanted to explore and and get curious about what he did. And I just kept showing up and showing up and showing up uh, day after day and year by year. And so this is really my 12th overall year in division one college athletics. But along the way, I've had a lot of stops uh, in, in high school, in the private sector, I spent some time down at Exos in Phoenix, uh, formerly Athletes Performance. And, you know, throughout my career, I've really worked with a multitude of athletes ranging from six years old, you know, uh, high school, college, professional Olympians, uh, general population, and, and have really been exposed to a lot of different things. But really, these last four years in particular have really uh, dived deep into the basketball world and have spent the last four years at University of South Carolina and exploring the basketball only route. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to do that at one of the best programs in the country and and work for a head coach who uh, is the best in the game. And so I've really kind of found found a unique route and have a pretty unique role um, in terms of what I'm able to do in in the college environment. So uh, I've been a lot of different places. This is my third Third, yes, third, uh, third. I guess major university that I've worked in in my career, and uh, really happy with where I'm at, and um, have found you know throughout the course of my career that uh, the concept of movement, change of direction, agility, uh, all of those things have, has been, really been a, a topic that I've grown a passion for, and so I'm excited to talk with you about that today and kind of feed off of what we already discussed on the mastermind a couple months ago. Absolutely. I can't take I can't let the opportunity go to ask you about working with general pop. And it's something that has come up pretty well quite a few times in the podcast. And it's something that gets potentially looked down upon, whether you're a personal trainer, like strength and conditioning coaches that have that have grown up working with general pop. How much of an influence has that had on you moving forward into the collegiate setting and further on in your career? Yeah. Uh, it's it provided me with I think a, a skill set that you might not think of when it comes to being a coach and it's almost less from the training side of things and more from just the people side of things and you really working with a diverse range of, of people like that you really learn uh, the lights went out on me uh, you really right. learn how to uh, uh, talk 
to and relate to and connect with a, a range of people. And, you know, um, with general population too, it ranges, you know, some of them are athletes in their own right. And we you know whether that's uh, different leagues they are participating in, or maybe they're still playing sports um, in some area, or you've got, you know, the 40 plus, you know, year old woman who is just trying to look to get back in shape, or you've got, you know, just the kind of the average Joe at the gym, like you've got to figure out what these people want at the heart of it and also find ways to connect with them and, and make what you do meaningful to them. And so I think it's been really helpful just in terms of the coaching side of things. Um, and also too, it really, I think also helps simplify what we do. You know, we can get really caught up, especially when we work with elite level, you know, athletes, we can get kind of caught up in the weeds of really fancy and advanced training methods. And I think working with that population gives you, um, kind of puts back in perspective what's really important in terms of achieving whatever goal it is. And also too, how to talk to people that are very different from you. And I think overall that just makes you a better coach and that makes you more relatable. And also um, I think it just helps, helps you be a better communicator. Absolutely agree. And uh, like I say, it's come up quite a few times. So I couldn't let the opportunity go to, to reaffirm my biases that this is the, that it is super, uh, super important for any coach yeah. to, to get in front of general pop and the, the sales, the sales tactics as well to, to sell your message, to sell your methods to someone that, fitness and exercise isn't potentially something that is within their lifestyle or hasn't yeah. been in their lifestyle up until now. So yeah. yeah great no, call. I think, yeah, Rob, I think you actually made a really good point there and I didn't touch on that, but I think, like you said, you know, at the heart of it too, what we do is we have to sell, we have to sell what we do. We have to, uh, you know, I think it gets a negative connotation, but we have to manipulate in a sense and we've got to, you know, find a way to make what we do appealing and, and make them, um, understand that they need it. And, uh, I, yeah. So, Thanks for saying that too, because that's that's a huge part of it, and that's kind of the aspect that none of us really like to talk about sometimes. Yeah, it is. I mean, when people say sales, they think of like door to door selling of windows or sleazy cars. car salesmen, yeah, sleazy yeah. dodgy guys, yeah, on forecourts. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely not. And I think it's a uh, to, to have that as a skill. Um, and it, again, it comes down to communication. So um, yeah, good topic. I like it. So one thing we discussed on the mastermind was testing options for change direction performance and i think you kicked us off with probably an answer that i didn't particularly expect and then that was that reverberated around daniel and neil going yeah i kind of think the same as well which was the fact that you don't test loads in when it comes to change direction so i'd just love to get your thoughts on how we understand change direction performance and testing options that we do have and then your views on that topic as a whole. Yeah, that's definitely something. Oh, and we're back with the lights. Here we go. <laughs> and uh, that's definitely something that's changed for me over the course of, of my career in, in terms of shying away from truly testing a, a change of direction or using a change of direction test. And, you know, I think one thing we talked about on the mastermind, too, that I really liked how Neil broke it down is, you know, when we look at what are the key determinants of you know, a good change of direction performance. You've got your physical capacities, right? So how strong they are, how powerful they are, how explosive they are. And you can measure that and test that a multitude of ways in the, in the weight room um, through obviously strength testing, um, jump profiling. You can look at ground contact times. You can look at reactive strength, rate of force development. And even just looking at those physical capacities alone are going to give you a pretty good idea of this athlete's capabilities um, and what they might look like in, in terms of changing directions. Because if you look at those metrics and they're shit, 
chances are they're probably not a great mover either. Um, then you look at the, the technical aspects of it. You know, what does their center of mass look like? What does their foot placement look like? What's their trunk doing? Um, what's their pelvis doing? What kind of angles are they creating? And, and those are things that I've learned more to assess every single day in, in what we do um, just by throwing them into an environment where they've got to move and, and throwing a lot of open drills at them, honestly, uh, right off the bat, because that gives me a lot of valuable information about what they look like before I even really break things down or break drills down and teach technique. I want to see what they look like just in an organic environment first. Um, and then, you know, the third component of that is that agility um, and task specific aspect of it and, and adding the cognitive effects of that as well, too. So, you know, I kind of break it down and you know, figuring out how you can assess each of those pieces. And I've just found that, you know, uh, my best measure, or I guess my best assessment of their ability to move is through just the the basic strength and, and kind of jump profiling that we do in the weight room, as well as I'm watching them in practice every single day and seeing what their movement looks like. And I'm talking with our coaches about how they move and how they see them move as well as every single day in our prep work, um, I think we take a little bit different uh, approach to it um, because typically in, in strength and conditioning, especially in the college sector, when we talk about teaching movement, it's done in a very controlled manner with very few fluctuations. And that used to be me too when I, when I would teach change of direction and, and movement and all of that. But I've really kind of shied away from that. And I really like to incorporate a lot of gameplay and problem solving activities within our warmups. And that gives me a lot of valuable information about how they move as well. And then I can regress if I need to in terms of really teaching technique and using the warm-up period to incorporate some of more some of those more closed drills, um, lateral movements, um, acceleration, deceleration, a lot of different you know hip turns, uh, rotational movements, and just incorporating those every single day uh, to get small exposures to it. Um, but I really have just found that you know, doing a change of direction test, like a, you know, 505 um, pro agility doesn't really give me any information. And and I found that just because they get better at that test doesn't mean that their actual movement performance is getting better in the place that it matters most, which is on the basketball court. And so we know that uh, sport is chaos and it involves so many different components. And so if I can get a, a pretty accurate idea through the testing that we're doing in the weight room, talking with our sport coaches and watching them in practice and in games, I can really figure out where their deficiency is. Is it a physical capability? Is it technical? Is it tactical? Or, or is it cognitive? And then from there, I can really figure out, okay, where do we need to spend some time from a movement um, side of things? And so I think uh, I don't want to test something just so they can get better at the test. And I can get enough information through through what we do, especially on the jump side of things, that I can get a pretty good idea of what their what their capabilities are. Can we dive a little bit deeper into the testing itself? Yeah. Just give us, and then what would be quite nice would be to link what you do in the jump testing with the intricacies of what you actually want to achieve in the change direction ability as well. Like, I don't know, um, rate force development. We would look at we look to that because it links with that for example is that possible yeah yeah yeah, absolutely so we're pretty fancy over here (laughs) i use i use a a just jump mat to do the majority of (laughs) of our testing you know i'll be i will say we've got force plates on the way and i'm pretty pretty excited about that but i will say 
you don't need a lot. You don't need a force plate and you don't need a lot of fancy equipment to measure some of these qualities, especially in this this team type of environment where, you know, everything is so applied. I don't need to get in the weeds of some of that technology. So I'll go through a pretty thorough jump profile with them. We will do a series of drop jumps, uh, both uh, double leg and single leg. I will do a just a, a basic counter movement jump with arm swing. I'll do that single leg as well. Um, both off one leg, land on one leg, and off one leg, land on two legs, where they're just worried about pure force and takeoff and not worrying about having to land on one as well. Um, I'll do a, a repeat four test. I'll use that as well to look at jump height, so it would give me the average of the four jumps as well as their ground contact times. And then something that we've just started to do recently is that same four jump, uh, both on right leg and left leg. So I can look at their react reactivity uh, right to left and see what those differences are. And so from, from all of those tests, I can get a pretty good idea of um, are, are they strong? Are they powerful? Are they explosive? Um, what's their reactive strength like? And then from there, I can really hone in on what that athlete needs. And what I've found, to be honest, is that especially for the first couple years that I get an athlete here, most of the time they just need to train consistently and all of those qualities are going to improve. And then it's really once we have an athlete that's been in, in our program for you know two, three years is when some of those uh, real specific differences start to come into play of how how is that information being used to really individualize training? Is this an athlete that uh, jumps slow but jumps high? Okay, I need I know I need to focus my my uh, our time on creating a little bit faster sh- stretch shortening cycle. Um, is this athlete have a really really significant right to left deficiency? Okay, let's try to close the gap there. And then also is that showing up in what we're seeing on the court as well? Um, and so just taking that information and really trying to, you know, I'm in a, in a position where uh, we have 16 athletes and it's just me. That's my only team. And so I get to really train them all day long, essentially. And I can really break down uh, player by player and focus on what they need as opposed to being in a big team setting where everybody's got a pretty similar program and we've got small tweaks here and there. And so it's really dependent on um, the development, uh, de- developmental level of the athlete, where they're at in terms of what I'm focusing on. Um, and then also, um, you know, where where do, where does that deficiency lie? And then how can we figure out where the, uh, you know, lowest hanging fruit is in terms of creating a, a more robust, more more adaptable, better moving athlete? You're absolutely killing us here, giving out giving all the secrets that it's actually just consistent <laughs> training. It's crazy. You're killing us. <laughs> it is crazy. And, you know, it's... <laughs> They, it's, it's crazy. You know, we have obviously, you know, a pretty good basketball team and we have some of the best players in the country and you get them in and most of them have never trained before too. So, you know, take me out of the equation. They're still going to be great at basketball, (laughs) but when you get some solid, consistent training under their belts, it's pretty amazing uh, what can happen, right? If you were, uh, less further along in your career. So if you were a younger coach, and you mentioned a, a lot about watching the, the, the girls in, in action, so watching the girls in the court and tr- trying to get an understanding of what they're like in a chaotic environment. That's great because you know exactly what you're looking for. You're, tw- you, you've, you're 12 years in, you've honed your skill of watching girls, how they move, what they need, little tweaks you can make. If you were at the younger end of your career, if you were one, two years in, would you try to do that and that, 
analysis of movement in a testing more, more closed environment, maybe a testing session versus on the court. I'm just trying to second guess the people who are listening who may be younger than the Korean going, that's great, Molly, but like, what do I look for? Like, I know a few little pointers that I could pick up on, but things move so fast. Things, you know, the Celtic environment, I'm trying to reduce that down to, to get your opinion on, on for, for those kind of coaches that are listening. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is still value in that. And as a young coach, I almost feel like I had to, I had to go through that process and, and do those things early on in my career to now uh, see the other side of things and to be able to evolve that process. But I think there is absolutely value in measuring some uh, close change of direction drills. You know, I think I find it hard to have like a true agility test of of any sort. But I think um, whatever cone drill or maybe it's a pro agility five hundred five, whatever it might be. I think there's value in getting really good at understanding how to look at those tests and also just introducing your athletes, especially when you're early on in your career and you're still learning what, what good movement looks like. You're still learning about technique and you're learning about, you know, what are the foundations of movement, you know, regardless of environment. I think there's a lot of value in the more you are exposed to those things and you're exposing your athletes to it, the more you're going to learn and you're going to pick up on a lot of the subtleties of it where you can really get nuanced with it down the line. So as a young coach, absolutely. You've got to know how to teach movement in a closed environment first. Like you've got to know um, the ins and outs of that. And I think you, when you become an expert on that, um, that also allows you to kind of see things through a different lens and, and evolve that. And when you watch them in their natural habitat over time, again, that's where you develop kind of that, that feel for it. And there is a, a sense of intuitiveness about it, but that doesn't come without first having those foundations of, of movement skills and, um, you know, whatever, whatever the test or the drills might be, uh, it doesn't even really matter as long as, um, there's some consistency to it and you're continuing to kind of hone in on, on the, those skills and that craft over time. And that plays into your comment about going open relatively early in the, in the, when the girls come into your, to your setting because of that exact situation. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once you know that then, and you watch them move. And I think that's a huge change that I've made is exposing them to open movement or open drills right off the bat and getting them into a kind of a hectic or chaotic environment and just seeing what they do naturally or just, you know, telling them to do something without coaching them up at all and giving them zero cues, watch them move uh, without thinking. And then you can really, really figure out, okay, what what's the one, maybe two at most important cues that they need um, to organize into a position that we want. And again, that comes with first knowing, knowing what you're looking for. And you've got to kind of go through those steps first. Would there be any time at all that you would go close to open and go the other way around at this point in your career right now? Um, yeah, I would say more, probably more so in the rehab setting, Um, you know, regardless of injury, I think there's, you know, I look back at, at, from a testing standpoint too, that's a situation where I would do some closed, um, change of direction type tests again, you know, doesn't even matter which one it is, but Definitely in that environment, I want to expose them to some more closed drills, but I'm also a big believer um, through the rehab process of movement variability right off the bat. And instead of just, um, and I think that's a a key tenet of, I I guess philosophy is the best word, is um, 
creating a learning environment that is focused on movement variability as opposed to movement repetition. And so while it's, while certain exercises or drills might be closed in nature, still providing um, variability within that, you know, I use a lot of repetition without repetition. Um, and so they know exactly, you know, the, the drill is closed. They know the distance they're going. They know where they're stopping. They know all, all of those factors, but and they have a certain amount of repetitions, but each one's got to look a little bit different. So while it's still closed, it's still providing um, some room for some creativity and some decision making. And, you know, as we know, movement is really complex and no two movements look the same and there's no cookie cutter technique or, or approach to it. So, uh, yeah, definitely there's there's value in that. Um, I use that mostly in the rehab setting. Um, and I still think, you know, maybe if you've got a pretty uh, young or inexperienced athlete, uh, it's not always a bad thing to start closed and, and go to open. I think just for, for my preference, I've found it easier to teach. And also, um, sometimes you get an athlete overthinking when, when you're trying to cue them too much and having them kind of perform movements in a way that's, uh, trying to almost fit them into a box. Is there any other places in the program where that part of your philosophy kind of comes into its own, the repetition without repetition? Yeah. And so I would say every, every day there's an aspect of it. And, um, that varies from, you know, an example would be, let's say we're, we're working on drop jumps or we're working on landings. Uh, you know, they might have a certain amount of repetitions, but each one's got to look different or be in a different position. And so that might look like, you know, dropping off the box with two feet, uh, dropping off the box and you're turning 90 degrees and landing, uh, 180 degrees, uh, two legs to one leg. Uh, and I, I give them really no, I give them a little bit of structure, but I kind of let them have some creativity with it. Uh, that same would hold true for, uh, different jumps, hops, bounds, um, giving them some constraints and then saying, you know, no two reps can look the same. Uh, even so from a lunge perspective, med ball throws, med ball slams, there's a lot of different ways you can incorporate it, but I really like it, um, from a movement, um, power, plyometric type of in that setting of um, really teaching movement in a variable way and also providing uh, some constraints within that to make them uh, make decisions and also provide some external factors that they've got to account for as well. One thing that I think is an interesting topic that fits probably right in here is doing all the things that you've mentioned about the using open drills versus closed drills. How many girls do you have on the team? 15? 16 this year. Yeah. 16. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I suppose that's a reasonable, medium-sized, medium-sized number. There were people working with twos and threes, and there were people working with 50s and 60s probably. But it's still a lot going on if all these girls are training at the same time and you're maybe on your own with one other person potentially, and you're managing this group trying to improve each one individually based on the stuff that we've just said is there any tips and techniques that you could share that allows you to allow the girls to get the work in but gives you the opportunity to coach and refine individual technique even though there's 16 girls working simultaneously yeah yeah i think i mean working with i give some so much credit to people that work with large groups first off. I mean, I, I did that early in my career too, and it's really impressive, the organization and structure. And I think one thing that really helps is um, even in a large group setting, I really like the concept of breaking it down either by 
um, maybe it's stations or, you know, if we're working on one particular skill, you're only having a certain number of athletes work at a time. So you can give them some specific feedback and you can see them all at, as they work. And also I think, um, one of the really important aspects that I try to take too is, is the education and the teaching piece of my athletes too, where they also become coaches and understand what we're looking for. And I think if you can create an environment too, where you've got other athletes coaching other athletes, um, that also gives you more leverage as a coach and allows for more things to be happening at once where you can keep an eye on uh, more people. But I think um, what I found, you know, obviously in my setting, I, I try to bring them in in small groups and typically we're in, you know, maybe four to six in a group at a time. And that allows me, I can keep my eyes on everybody at the same time, but we still will put them in situations where they're either partnered up or they're, you know, if it's a certain movement that we're doing, uh, it's maybe one or two athletes going at a time. And I think one of the biggest things that as I try to create an environment and put constraints on the task where they're kind of self-organizing and figuring out how to uh, solve problems and get into the right positions uh, without much coaching from me. And I think something that's evolved over time is I used to coach way too much over, especially when it came to movement and things like that, because it is such a, you know, there's something to be said about just smoothness of movement, natural movement. And I just found that I was over cueing, over coaching. And really I have just tried to create drills and create an environment where they're figuring things out on their own and they know what a good rep feels like. And they know what a bad rep feels like, and they know what the position that they're supposed to be in feels like and, and vice versa. And so, um, you know, I guess, you know, in tips is try to break them down in as small groups as possible, even if you've got, you know, multiple things going on at once, but um, simplify your, your cueing pick. Maybe it's the one thing that you're focusing on for that day, the, the one postural element or physical element. And then that will, will help you coach multiple athletes at the same time. If you're trying to coach eight different things, um, it gets really hard and to provide feedback and to also, you know, allow for, um, that athlete to really take in that feedback and make adjustments. Is there any examples that you can give us around creating those constraints to get what you want? So you don't have to do what you say, which is overcoach and overcue and probably get super frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, one thing that has really helped keep the posture, you know, I think about, our, um, you know, lateral movement. And, you know, when we, we don't do, I'll, I'll say this, the only real change of direction or agility work that we do is, is within our actual training sessions in the weight room. We actually don't, you know, we don't have speed or, um, agility sessions out on the court. I just incorporate movement into every part of, of what we do in, in the weight room. And I think, um, one thing that I've really found to help create posture, um, the posture that we want when it comes to lateral movement is adding like an upper body driver or like a, a plate punch or a, a load that an athlete is, is holding at the chest, uh, when performing something like a lateral bound, you know, a lateral bound with a plate punch really helps keep, uh, the chest up and out that you want. It also provides them with that, that forward lean and that ability to load and kind of keep that angle that you want to, to push back. And that would be a specific one that I found to be really, really helpful in terms of cleaning up uh, what, what can sometimes be a, a messy movement, just teaching a lateral bound. You know, there's obviously a huge stability component to that as well, too. But being able to really stick the landing, 
uh, control the torso, you know, keep the chest up and also create the, the low angles that we want to, to, to direct force laterally. Uh, that's one that I've found uh, really helps clean that up uh, from every level of athlete, from, you know, novice all the way through, you know, my, I look at my freshmen versus, versus my seniors. So I'm just going to interrupt Molly for 30 seconds and just say fantastic part one has gone but fantastic part two coming up where we have a little chat around designing drills for change direction performance but also how we develop change direction qualities in a gym environment so super cool part two coming up with molly this episode of the pacey performance podcast is sponsored by fusion sport Fusion Sport is the global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Their annual Human Performance Summit has become a must-attend event for anyone interested in performance analytics and research. The North American Summit will take place on November 5th and 6th at the -the state-of-the-art UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I have actually been to and is an incredible facility. So with the attendance capped at 250 people, the summit provides a unique and intimate forum for live discussion and collaboration between human performance professionals across sport, military and public safety. So this year marks the first online tickets that are available, allowing attendees worldwide to experience the event virtually, which is an incredible offering from the guys at Fusion Sport. So to learn more and purchase tickets to Fusion's North American Human Performance Summit, please visit humanperformancesummit.com and use the code SPORTSMITH10 for a 10% discount. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid, and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics, and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organizations, performance centers, teams, and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the episode with Molly. Just changing this from a change direction conversation to the agility side, obviously including the the cognitive element. At what point 
or is it all the time that there is a decision making element within the sessions that you run from a uh movement i can't i can't say it without saying it but change direction agility session yeah yeah and the re- the reason we don't do a lot of uh movement work like that is because they are in practice all year round and they're playing basketball all year all year round and we take a little bit different approaches we don't usually have individual sessions where you know they might just be working on skill work ball handling passing shooting things like that and we're an integrated full team practices where it's live play all year round and so they get that all the time and so um but one aspect that we will do and, and um i may have mentioned this earlier is every warm-up we include some sort of gameplay or or problem solving activity and that can range from you know even if we're in small groups um you know today we had uh, uh groups in and you know we had two to three athletes competing against each other you know teams of two or three and uh, we had a kind of a unique type ball and we have some turf space. So, you know, they could dribble three times, uh, take three steps, or they had three seconds to get rid of the ball and they're trying to evade each other and basically play a combination of football, handball, uh, ultimate, um, you know, we'll, we'll include games like that where there's decision-making, there's, um, agility within that itself. Um, we will add components to, um, you know, I'll think of even, uh, our jump training where they've got a jump and they've got either a, a teammate or two that are moving in on them in some direction. And they've got to figure out how to land around them or between them. And then they've got to make a movement around them or we'll add things where they've got to uh, jump off a box and then they've got to make a one movement around some sort of like, maybe it's a screen, maybe it's um, an, you know another teammate or there's uh, something that they've got to evade. And so just trying to find little ways to include um, some, different aspects of, of time of, of perturbation um, and decision making within you know simple things such as jumps I found goes a long way too just in, in developing a pretty adaptable pretty adaptable athlete I love seeing collegiate athletes and professional athletes during warm-ups playing games that aren't, isn't their game so I don't know over here we've got cricket players who traditionally play football play soccer before before they play cricket as a as a warm up, what is the best example of a warm up game that you would do with your girls that they absolutely love that's got nothing to do with basketball? Yeah, um, we've done kick we've done kickball before. Like anything with their feet, I think yeah. is always hilarious. Um, but one <laughs> staple game that I've used, and I actually picked this up. I think my very I might have picked it up when I was in college, but it's trash ball. And it's essentially, you know, we'll play it, uh, we'll play it on the turf, we'll put play it on the court, but essentially you've got two big trash bins. And I like to play with, um, we'll use, you know, sometimes we'll use a football, sometimes we'll use a soccer ball, sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll use just strange ob- objects, anything other than, sometimes we'll use a tennis ball. Uh, I actually really like the tennis ball and our, and our players really love that just from a hand-eye coordination, but... Um, it's very similar where you, you're, you've got a team, let's say we're a full team. So it's eight versus eight. Uh, you've got three steps with the ball or you've got to give it up after three seconds. And you've got, you know, they're playing defense on each other. Uh, they're, it's a kind of a combination again of like ultimate Frisbee handball, um, all of that, but that's one that they absolutely, and like, we've got a competitive team and that's what I love about incorporating games right off the bat is the engagement level 
automatically goes through the roof. Um, and you've got, you know, we've got a population that doesn't inherently love the weight room or love to train, but you get them playing a game in the first five minutes and all of a sudden, like their moods change, they're moving, they're sweating and they're ready to go. So, uh, trash ball is a, is a key one. Uh, and then we'll do a lot of, um, a lot of stuff with tennis balls and like reactive tennis ball, uh, games, like throwing the ball off the wall and doing some different competitions. Um, and they, they tend to really gravitate towards that a lot. I don't know if it was in your Instagram the other day. I don't think it was, but there was a cool game that I saw. There was like um, people in pairs. No, if it was, I think it was a mixed group actually. And there was a cone in the middle. They were in like an athletic position, like ready to get the cone and then to touch the head, touch the hips and then dive for the cone. And you yeah. could just see that the intensity was absolutely through the roof because obviously the comp- competitive streak for these guys and girls just off the charts yeah i thought it was cool i love stuff yeah. like that it's great yeah yeah i think we've done something similar but like you said there's always some a- aspect of just fun and game to what we do and there's also some element of competition every single day you know that's something that can be trained but i've also found too when it comes to a, a movement standpoint a speed standpoint uh you know jump training whatever it is when you add an element of competition they're not only competing with themselves they're competing with each other but you get to really see their true capabilities and i found too um, from a movement skill standpoint you get to really see them in their kind of natural element um as they compete because they're not thinking about what they're doing they're just trying to they're trying to win and so um it's not always i think you know that's not always pretty and pretty movement isn't always, I think you just had somebody on your podcast and they said like pretty movement isn't always the fastest or or something along those lines. And I found that couldn't be more true, but those elements I found like it had increases the, the engagement, the excitement, uh, the willingness to train, desire to train. So, uh, it's a huge component for us and it develops a lot of athletic skills too. Like what, what it checks a lot of boxes. Absolutely. Have you always, uh, coached, uh, girls, Molly? mostly yeah but there have been times throughout my career you know uh, when I think back to the time I spent in high school I coached a lot of male athletes a lot of I would say majority male athletes uh, at the high school level and even going back to my time at Exos uh, there was a a range of of males as well I worked with MLB players Um, you know I got to work with some Olympic athletes some sprinters and, and things like that and then as I uh, ventured into my first job at Purdue. I worked with um, uh, seven or eight different teams there as well, um, both men and women. And then as I kind of progressed in my career, uh, you know, I transitioned after a year and I worked at Louisville for four years. And the teams that I primarily had were all female athletes, but I did get opportunities to kind of jump in with with um, male teams as well. And then obviously I've been, you know, working with women basketball players the last four years. So Majority of my time has been with women, um, which I absolutely love, but I have had some exposure. If you were to coach a men's basketball team, for example, use that as, a, use that as a, an obvious one, would there be any differences that you would incorporate into your change direction agility sessions or thought process or philosophy that would be different to what you do with your with your girls? I wouldn't say there there's huge fundamental differences from a you know training selection standpoint exercise selection. I think there's definitely considerations that you know we've got to account for on the female side. Obviously, um, just the the structural integrity you know of joints and ligaments. Um, you know understanding differences um, 
that, you know, our bodies go through during a menstrual cycle and understanding ways to, you know, account for that and, and be aware of that and understanding there's, there's times where, uh, you know, joint laxity is, is increased and understanding, um, in general where the deficiencies lie, you know, I, I see a big difference, uh, in terms of strength when our, our women come in and just generally weak, uh, they generally lack motor control, uh, posterior chain strength is a huge concern, um, and not saying that's that's not prevalent on, on the men's side too, but it's definitely more more of a factor. And I think uh, there's a lot of, I'd say the biggest differences probably lie on on more of the psychosocial, psychoemotional aspects of the training environment that I try to create for our women uh, that you don't maybe necessarily have to account for on, on the men's side as well. And I think there's just a general, um, probably different, and I don't, I can't say this as a blanket statement, but a, a general difference in um, the goal of training on the men's side, a lot of times it is for size and strength, whereas that is not uh, probably our primary focus on, on our side. So yeah, there's, there's differences, but from a fundamental, tra- you know, training is training and, and there's a lot of things that I would do almost identical to what I do now, but there's definitely other considerations uh, that maybe don't necessarily relate to the actual training program itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the menstrual cycle and dealing with the, the effects of that in with your with your group, how do you go about tracking it? What individual changes do you potentially make at different stages of that cycle? And again, that sounds relatively manageable when it's one or two, but when it's 16, it becomes obviously there's lots of moving parts there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll be honest, this is an area that I'm still, I'm still figuring out, you know, even right. as a, as a female, it hasn't been until the past couple of years that I've really even taken this into account. And I'm feel like I'm just scratching the surface and there's so much that I don't know or do enough of with our athletes. But I think for starters, just being able to, like you said, track when their cycles are and understanding, um, you know, who's on birth, who's on birth control and who's not and understanding what, um, different side effects are and understanding how the cycle affects some of our players literally can't get out of bed for an entire day or two. And just understanding how it, how it affects each person. I think, you know, that was kind of the starting point and just understanding, you know, for me, I literally, I have notes and like, I have reminders on my phone and like, I, I obviously have conversations with our athletes too. So like, I kind of know when this is coming um, and I think a key, you know, key tenet of our program too is autonomy. And I really try to do a lot on the front end of involving them in on the process of, of what we're doing, how things feel for them. And so when it comes to be those times, giving them some choices and some options of what we're doing from a training standpoint that day, because in general, you know, there's going to be times where they're more apt to, um, respond better to some intensity and, and things like that. And there's going to be times where they're, they need to chill a little bit and they need to probably maybe hit a little bit more volume, but you know, a little bit lower intensity and having given them some choice of what makes them feel best. And also just trying to educate them along the process and let them know that kind of what they're experiencing and going through is, is completely normal. And also just even small tweaks in, in those programs based on how they're feeling goes so far into them trusting you, uh, buying in and, and really feeling like you're making decisions that are in their best interest. So, um, I don't, 
I still don't have a full grasp of, of some of the the science behind all of it. But those are some small tweaks that um, we've made and, and can, will continue to make um, going forward. But obviously, when it comes to competition and things like that, like we can't uh, reschedule when our games are. <laughs> you know, if our whole team, you know, you got to play the game. But when it comes to what stress I'm providing and and putting on them, there's always ways for me to to adjust. Is there any particular resources that you would recommend that you potentially use to help your understanding of this area that you could share? Yeah, honestly, my best resource is my friend Sam Moore. She's okay. the one that that does all all the research and is is putting out research, doing research, and she has a wealth of knowledge in this area. And that's honestly been someone that I've really learned uh, what I have from. And, and um, but in terms of like actual research and things like that. Um, you know, I don't have specific articles, but I just through conversations with other people and, and you know, she's one that I know like really isn't doing, she's doing something that nobody else is doing. And so, um, that's a huge resource, you know, for anybody that's looking to learn more about it and, and couldn't recommend her enough. And on the psychosocial side of things and how that may differ from when coaching guys, any particular nuances that you can share that, potentially worked for you when working with girls yeah yeah i mean i think there there's this is a, a rabbit hole we could go down pretty <laughs> deep and and far in many directions but i think you know we've got such i've got such a unique opportunity to work with you know 18 to 22 year olds you know that's some of the most uh formidable times of, of your life right there like you you are literally uh maturing and growing and developing at, at such a fast rate. And so it's a really unique time um, to help them build awareness, to build courage and confidence, uh, to help them. You know, there's always you're fighting body image um, issues, you know, especially in the age of social media uh, and Instagram models and, and fitness models. Um, and, you know, the perceptions of what lifting weights will will do to their bodies and making them bulky or this and that or looking like a guy and you know fighting those things and you know it's a a unique time too where you know I'm obviously helping them develop on the physical side but I also get to help them develop uh, into really strong badass women and so I really take seriously the environment that I'm creating in terms of making it an inclusive environment um setting the bar high to, to challenge them and, and get outside their comfort zone and to be comfortable taking risks and to be comfortable, uh, you know, maybe looking stupid or failing, trying something and not being able to do it and getting really, uh, really comfortable with failure and just having the courage to try things um, and just helping them own who they are as a person, but helping them own their bodies as well too and, and what their bodies can do and really show them what their bodies can do. But, you know, when I think of... Uh, the training environment too it, it's it's one where I really try to kind of follow the the tenets of you know the self determination theory of you know creating an environment where they feel competent so they feel like they're good at, at what they're doing they feel like they're strong they feel like they um, understand you know what what we're doing uh, an environment that you know creates a lot of connection you know with me as a coach but also you know them to their teammates and where they feel like they are supported and like they belong and um, again they they are they fit in and and they're supposed to be there and then also um that piece of autonomy of you know giving them a voice and you know it sounds but like 
for a long time in in this world, women didn't have a voice. And and I think women are still finding their voice and being comfortable using their voice and having opinions and being able to make decisions and, and have authority and really giving them opportunities to have that in the weight room and um, ask for their opinions and ask for their input and, and have them really just be involved in that process and really see what they're capable of. I think that's probably the fav- my favorite part of my job um, are all those factors. Obviously, I love training, but um, it's definitely a pretty unique opportunity to kind of design an environment that is fun. Uh, they sh- they're able to really stretch themselves and, and see what they can do, both physically, mentally, uh, emotionally. Um, and it's that kind of that balance between, you know, push and pull, you know, giving them high things to, to high, high standards to meet, but also meeting them where they're at, accepting them for who they are as individuals and helping them grow and develop uh, throughout the course of, you know, their careers here, however long that might be. The passion comes across, Molly. It's absolutely great. <laughs> Love it. It's great to hear. Great to see. Um, one thing that we spoke about in the Mastermind was developing change direction qualities in the gym. And we've kind of touched on it, but it'd be good to go a little bit deeper. And one thing that you spoke about and the rest that the other two guys spoke about was isometric training, eccentric training, and the potential link or the link between um, that and, and improving change direction qualities. Would you be able to give us a bit of an insight into how you link the two? Again, we have touched on it a little bit, but potentially go a little bit deeper in how that does link and how yeah. you do link it programming-wise. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think um, maybe it was Daniel that talked about, you know, reverse engineering the sport as well, too. So when I look at basketball and I look at the data that we get, you know, in any given practice or game, uh, the number of high-intensity accelerations, decelerations, changes of direction are upwards of, I mean, high, you know, hundreds, uh, if not thousands of changes of direction in, in a single session. So if you look at that repeated day after day and, and throughout the course of an entire season or an entire year, you know, their ability to absorb force um, has got to be really high. And so when I look at the most important buckets for us to fill on the weight room side of things, and from a developmental standpoint, we spend majority of our time in the off season um, on eccentric and isometric strength, you know, specifically when it comes to the lower body. And we spend majority of our time on, you know, uh, deceleration and landing. Um, And we do that in in a multitude of ways. And there's really a small percentage of the time that we spend training on true, like concentric strength and concentric power output. And um, that time spent in in those training phases definitely differs um, based on developmental level of the athletes, you know, if they're a first year, second year, third or fourth year athlete. Um, and again, through, you know, assessing them and, and seeing where they're at throughout and knowing them so well, you kind of know what buckets you need to fill at different times of the year. Um, but we spend a a very good amount of time on eccentric training, um, you know, both bilaterally, uh, unilaterally and, um, that that's a key tenant for us. And I would say that, you know, the time spent, um, in that over, you know, the course of a four year career here definitely shortens, um, our, uh, seniors, most of our seniors and, you know, even some of our juniors are spending, you know, far less time, but we do always come back to it, revisit it and hit that for a period of time to develop that quality. And then, you know, based on where they, where they're at and what they need most, we'll, we'll transition in or out. But, um, that, that is 
absolutely huge just for the amount of stress that they undergo, the amount of times they, they jump and land and practice in a game. So I want to make sure we are as robust as possible. Um, you know, I think another thing Daniel said too was, you know, training them for worst case scenario. I, I mean, there is never, never something as, uh, or something, um, about being too strong. Like it's never a bad thing. And so that is, that is something that I always want to prepare them for. And then also just preparing them for what do I know our worst practices look like? And what do I know our worst games look like? And what do I know postseason when we've got to play three games in three days? Like, what do I know those loads look like? And how are we preparing and making sure that we are uh, adequately prepared for that heading into a, a brutal season? So when it comes to programming eccentric training, is there any particular methods that you gravitate towards? Does it change throughout the year? Just going to the very end point of adding the 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 exercise into the into the programming sheet. But what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, uh, it it differs. It really does. And I know that it's a it's a gray area, and it is very individual. Um, you know, our advanced athletes will spend more time in some of the supermax eccentrics. We'll do a little bit more from the um, accentuated eccentrics. And things like that. Whereas, you know, for our, our novice athletes, it's a little bit more basic and just really focusing on um, time under tension and, and tempo. We do a ton of tempo training and then kind of based on what uh, the athlete's ability is and from a programming and exercise selection standpoint, it's again, kind of what, uh, what methods do they need? But it, it really looks different kind of athlete by athlete. Um, but those are uh, like I said before, the Supermax and the Accentuated, like those are two uh, key ones for some of our more advanced athletes. And then again, we we uh, we incorporate tempos all the time. Would you have the uh, more experienced athletes doing tempos as well? Or is that strictly for? Strictly we do, for yeah, athletes, yeah. No, we definitely do. Um, and then as we kind of get into, especially when you know, I think of when we return in the summer, the beginning of our off season. Um, you know, for the first couple weeks, typically everyone's somewhat similar, you know, uh, exercises might change a little bit, but, uh, everyone's kind of on, on a similar page as I kind of assess where we're at after a long season and having some time off. And we do a lot of tempo training in those first couple weeks. Um, so there definitely is an element of that involved and, you know, how long we spend in that, you know, again, will kind of differ. Um, and as we kind of hit, we're about a week and a half, two weeks as we kind of hit our official practice start date. Uh, we, especially in that this preseason phase where our time on court increases exponentially, uh, I cut back a lot of what I do, but we do a lot of isometric work kind of in the, this month of, of preseason training where we're not playing games yet, um, but court stress and volume is pretty high um, and we still want to get a pretty good training effect. And I found that isometrics are a really great way to continue um, adaptations, but also do it, uh, in a, I guess, less stressful way. Again, not jumping to the end point, but exercise selection when it comes to, when it comes to isometrics, what does that actually look like in, in, uh, in practice for these girls? Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, we do a, a lot of different single leg, uh, variations. So a lot of split squat variations. Um, we'll do some, I would say, uh, any different split squat variations are the key. We've got some that will do, you know, more rear foot elevated. We'll do front foot elevated, just regular. Uh, we'll use bands, almost like a, a Spanish squat variation, but we'll do it in a, a split squat variation. Um, we will do some, some wall sits, um, uh, for particular athletes. Um, 
and then incorporating even, you know, I think of tendon health, knee health, you know, we'll do some different leg extension isometrics at, at different angles and, you know, different uh, means of doing that. We've got an actual leg extension machine. We'll do some heavy um, isometrics. We'll do use stability ball into the wall. We'll do some band work. Um, methods kind of change with that, but um, we'll do some just isometric back squats or front squats or whatever squat variation that they're doing, just being able to hold uh, in the bottom, uh, longer durations and, you know, keeping the volume really low. Uh, those are some key ones that we'll use, uh, from a lower body standpoint as we kind of transition to a phase where their, their legs are, uh, getting crushed a little bit. Superb. Well, I know Molly, you've got the afternoon off, so I want to let you crack on and, uh, enjoy yourself, but anyone that wants to get in touch with you or get to know more about you, get, look at your social media, where's the best place for people to go? Yeah, I would say social media is probably your best bet, and I'm pretty active on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you know, email as well too. You know, my email is on on our website. Uh, but yeah, Instagram, my my handle is mbenetti22. You know, we can put that uh, in writing for Absolutely. those that can't, that can't spell Benetti. But uh, and then <laughs> Coach Coach Benetti on, on Twitter. But um, both good resources and ways to get a hold of me and and up be pretty responsive on those platforms superb molly thank you very much for for coming on again as in first time with the mastermind it's been a pleasure to chat to you and i'll uh, let you crack on with the afternoon i appreciate it rob thank you again for having me on it was, it was a good time likewise cheers molly thanks for tuning in to episode 370 of the pacey performance podcast big thanks to molly huge thanks to molly for giving up her time on a day off to come on the podcast for a chat also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. So next week, we've got a, an absolute superb episode from someone who works in a high school environment over in the US. So for anyone that's working with youth athletes, that'll definitely not be one to miss. So thanks again for tuning in, and I'll chat to you next week. Thank you.